We hear now the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 38, verses 1 through 8. And as proof that we are not subject or swayed to the false god of superstition, I will share that that can be found on page 666 of your pew Bibles. (laughs) Hear now the word of our Lord through the Spirit's work with us. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember now, O Lord, I implore you, How I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your ancestor David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and defend this city. And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. See, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial of the ten steps by which it had declined. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During the communion service in a few minutes, we will hear sung in its original tongue of German, solos and choruses from a cantata written by Johann Sebastian Bach. The English title of the piece is God's Time is the Best of All Times. As I said last week, Bach wrote this cantata when he was 22 years old for the funeral of the mayor of the city in which he was living and studying music at the time. During the first four Sundays of Lent, I'm preaching sermons which are drawn from different biblical passages that Bach used in this composition. And today we hear the work presented in its entirety. The first solo we hear today captures the theme of last week's sermon, in which I shared a dark view of human history expressed by a contemporary writer that was consistent with certain verses or sections of Psalm 90. I also said that the psalm, unlike the writer, turns to hope as the psalmist prays, Lord, teach us to know that we must die so that we might become wise. This is the prayer that David Gunter will soon sing. The second solo we hear today comes from the story we just read from 2 Kings. During an illness, King Hezekiah, who is one of the most effective kings in Israel's history, is told by the prophet Isaiah, set your house in order for you shall die. You are not going to recover. Later in the sermon, we will see how Hezekiah responds. 
Stand West will be singing these haunting words of Isaiah to Hezekiah. The third and fourth solos we will hear today, sung by Laura Sayer and Ben Hutchins, contain two of the seven last words Christ spoke from the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit, and today you will be with me in paradise. These phrases, which will be subject of the next two sermons, or sermons in the next two weeks at Westminster, affirm the promise of eternal life that lies at the heart of Christian faith. As we partake of bread and wine today, even as we're nervous about virus, we partake as well of the music we hear. And we pray that just as the bread and wine become body and blood to our faith, so also will the music nourish our hearts and minds along the way of our walk. Let us pray. O God, during this season of Lent, may the words we read, hear, sing, say, pray, and recite, so become a part of our hearts and minds that as individuals and as a community, we may live fully with the precious gift of life. For whatever length of days our lives shall number. We pray this trusting that your time is the best of all times. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As a pastor, it has fallen my privileged lot to sit with people who face death within a few months or weeks or hours. I have seen people receive such news with dread, marked by worry about their children or spouse or both, about unfinished business of their lives, about sins unforgiven and relationships unreconciled. As death approaches, some move to acceptance of the inevitable and begin to trust that they will soon see God. But others remain philosophical or agnostic about any form of life to come. Their poet choice is Shakespeare. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. As a pastor and believer, it's hard for me to see people face death in this direction of mood. And yet I never give up my own trust in God's power and willingness to draw unto himself all whom God chooses. So even at funerals of those whose belief is uncertain or unknown, I am able to sing, perhaps even on their behalf, heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. I've also seen people receive word of their impending death 
and react with calm and courage. They comfort those around them. They offer biblical-like blessings and charges to those who will follow them. They ask for and grant forgiveness in broken relationships. Their quiet calm is a balm in Gilead, giving much-needed strength and comfort for the sin-sick souls left behind. They go to sleep at night and awake in the morning with the words of Emily Dickinson, Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feel shorter than the day I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. In addition, I have seen people who, having been advised to put their affairs in order and who steadfastly refuse to give in to death, even if they have heeded the advice of putting their affairs in order, especially those business and financial. They do everything within their power to fight or stave off death. For the sake of the family members they love, the children they want to rear to adulthood, the unfinished work in their public or private service, the remaining sermons they want to write, songs they want to compose, research they want to complete, books they want to publish. I admire the strength and love for commitment to life that they have. Dylan Thomas is their poet. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. In the biblical story we read today, when King Hezekiah receives news of his impending death, he responds by turning his face to the wall. There is no other human being in the king's chamber. The prophet Isaiah, who has borne this news to Hezekiah, has left the room. It is only Hezekiah and the sound of silence. In the few feet between Hezekiah's face and the wall next to his bed, Hezekiah is solely in the presence of himself and God. No other human being sees Hezekiah's face, his demeanor, the color of his eyes. Unlike Noah, but like Abraham and Moses, Jonah and Job, Hezekiah dares to pray to God and express the fullness of his feelings. He does not ask for an extension for his life. Rather, he dares to remind God of the person he, Hezekiah, has always sought to be and what he has always sought to do. Remember now, O Lord, I implore you how I have walked before you in faithfulness 
with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah is not reading his resume, spiritual or secular. He is simply saying with utmost clarity, I have walked before you. I have done what is good in your sight. Here I am, Lord, here I am. Then weakened from illness and exhausted from pouring himself out to God, Hezekiah weeps even bitterly. He has been completely honest in the presence of the Holy One. In response, God does what God sometimes does in Scripture. God changes his intended course of action and extends Hezekiah's life by 15 years. Why this happens to Hezekiah when it doesn't happen to others is not something the biblical narrator raises or explains. In the same way that no biblical narrator explains why Cain is given a mark of protection after killing his brother Abel, why God spares most of the Israelites who dance before the golden calf, why Jonah is rescued from the sea and given a second chance to go to Nineveh. To the frustration of our rational minds, Scripture merely describes the mysterious ways of God, rarely speculating or explaining such matters as why some are spared and some not. But in this instance, Hezekiah is spared. I believe this story teaches us two things about facing death, our own and that of another. First, I believe the story teaches us that we can hope and even dare to trust that those who have gone before us may have at some point, unknown to us, presented themselves completely, fully, honestly before God. Like Hezekiah, they may have turned their face to the wall and been honest in the presence of God alone. Perhaps they experienced a movement between their spirit and God's spirit. Perhaps in that space between face and wall, they saw of God what they needed to see, heard from God what they needed to hear, were invited into that carriage, pointed to eternity. Second, I also believe this story can teach us that as Christians, whether we face death with dread, with calm, or with a fighting spirit, we live under a promise that deep in the human heart is an unquenchable trust that life does not end with death, that the Father who made us will care for us beyond the bounds of vision, even as he has cared for us in this earthly world. Many years ago, I conducted the funeral of a business leader in the town in which I lived at the time, whose reputation was mixed, but whose contributions to the community were significant enough that the church was full at his funeral. I began the sermon by saying, it is questionable whether or not Charles Rohde believed in God. 
Then, like at nearly all the funeral services I preach, I recounted what the person being remembered had meant to his family and his family to him, and what he had meant to the community and the community to him. I never claimed to know whether or not Charles was now in the arms of God, but I expressed my hope, my trust, my unproven and unverified belief that in the mystery of who God is, God remembered Charles and found a seat for him in that chariot. I do believe deep in my heart that we can face our own death and the death of those we admire, trusting that God's time is the best time of all and it is the best time for all. Amen.